Hello and welcome to Ohio Folklore. I'm your host, Melissa Davies. I have a special announcement for you Ohio Folklore fans. Ohio Folklore is about to have its first contest. You may know that I've often requested that you write a review on Apple Podcasts because it helps people find the show. Now, when you do, take a screenshot of your review and email it to me at melissa at ohiofolklore.com. Doing so will enter your name into a raffle. The winner will be drawn soon. The prize is the honor of picking the topic of a future Ohio Folklore episode. How cool is that? Got a legend you've always wondered about? Want to know the truth behind it? Then get to writing that review. Now, let's get on with today's episode. Today, we're exploring one popular Ohio tourist destination. Its long history includes a rags-to-riches immigrant turned entrepreneur. It includes an international bootlegging scheme during the heady times of prohibition. And lastly, it includes one historic structure that stands yet today, a home for lonely spirits, known all too well by staff and hotel guests alike. I'm talking about the little-known legends of Port Clinton and the Island House Hotel. Most of us have some familiarity with the lakeside community of Port Clinton. Although its residents number only about 6,000, it claims fame as the walleye capital of the world. That's due to its strategic location at the mouth of the Portage River, where the fish are plentiful every year. About 45 miles east of Toledo, these fertile fishing grounds drew early settlers. Today, however, most of us visit Port Clinton for its easy access to the lakeshore. Hotels and restaurants abound, eager to serve vacationers filling the beaches and marinas. The city is a great spot to disembark on a ferry to the islands. Ohioans and non-Ohioans alike come far and wide to soak in Erie's summer sun and waves. Few of Port Clinton's tourists, clad in flip-flops and bathing suits, have any idea of the history of the ground they're treading. The soil beneath their feet holds memories of a past not so far removed, some of it only 100 years ago. The 1920s, a period now mostly recalled with fondness, a time of roaring wealth, prosperity, and frivolous parties. The Great War was over, jobs were plentiful, and women's hemlines were riding up, along with stock market futures. All this unbridled decadence was sure to run into a hard limit at some point, right? Enter the 18th Amendment, passed by Congress in 1919. It took effect on January 17, 1920, launching a nearly 14-year ban on the production, importation, transportation, and sale of alcoholic beverages. Overnight, businesses once involved in any part of the liquor supply chain were outlawed. What this legislation couldn't prohibit, however, was the public's thirst for booze. Demand only rose once this product became scarce. Many of us Ohioans, like the rest of the U.S., grew defiant and resolute. We would have our liquor, just as our forefathers did, and their forefathers before them. Whether by stealth, ingenuity, or criminal subterfuge, the taps 
would keep flowing. Meet John Zetzer, a Port Clinton man, notorious in his own time, happy to capitalize on this business opportunity. Zetzer was officially known as one of the founders of the Port Clinton Marine Company. He and his brother, George Joseph Zetzer, were also known for their role in developing the Keller Airfield. They aided in the construction of the Portage River Bridge. From one perspective, they were a pair of sharp-minded entrepreneurs with a bent on all things related to transportation and infrastructure. Countless Port Clinton businesses benefited from their projects during the decades that followed Prohibition. However, few recall that John Zetzer's wealth was first seeded in his role as bootlegger, secreting rum from the southern shores of Ontario home to Port Clinton. One testament to this oft-forgot history is the bootlegger's waterfront bar and grill, which stands today at the mouth of the Portage River. You can stop by this establishment, ask for a seat on their patio, and sip an old-fashioned as you gaze down the river, where she spills her contents into Erie's waves. Perhaps after a drink, or two, or six, if you squint at the water's surface, you might just spot something headed further inland. The hazy shadow of a man in suspenders, chomping a cigar, at the wheel of his 27-foot, 200-horsepower, 1929 Dart speedboat. John Zetzer secured a contract with an unnamed Canadian party to conduct frequent nightly, quote, mail runs, as he liked to call them, across Lake Erie. He was behind the wheel, spiriting booze across the lake through the shadow of night. And just like the Postal Service, he promised his customers he'd run through rain, sleet, and snow. No obstacle would prevent the flow of illicit rum into Port Clinton. With as many as three to four runs per week, Zetzer could easily predict the movements of Coast Guard patrols as they surveilled the waterways along Erie shores. The parcels he was to deliver were hidden in plain sight, resting on the passenger seats. Precious bottles of rum were placed inside cardboard cylinders and then bundled into burlap sacks. His open-air speedboat offered plain view of the cargo, giving onlookers no suspicion of the contraband within. Setzer would later boast in a 1979 Fremont News Messenger article that his rum runner, as he dubbed it, could reach 40 knots and make the trip from Ontario to Port Clinton in 17 minutes flat. He claimed he could outrun any vessel that may give him chase, although he demurred on answering whether any such scenario ever took place. I was just fortunate enough not to get caught, is all he would say. However, he would acknowledge having dodged several bullets on making final deliveries to recipients. Of course I was young and full of vinegar back then, I enjoyed every minute of it, he explained. At the time of Prohibition, John Zetzer somehow managed to keep his operation under the radar of the law. However, he built a growing reputation with distributors of all sorts. He kept a steady supply of Canadian rum surging down the Portage River on moonlit nights. 
For the right price, an owner could keep a speakeasy stocked and his customers coming back night after night. Setzer would later expand his rum-running routes to the air. After attaining a pilot's license, he began flying shipments over Erie's water to spots along Ohio's shore. His air smuggling operation would be detected by authorities on at least one occasion, leading to a conviction and a brief jail term. It wasn't enough to dissuade him from the lifestyle. It seems his bootlegging went on right up until the 21st Amendment finally repealed prohibition in late 1933. That's when the black market for booze dried up overnight. You might expect that our enterprising bootlegger would have fallen on hard times when his new competitor, the U.S. government, effectively bulldozed the market. By then, this young man had become tied to organized crime, ties forged in his lucrative bootlegging runs across Lake Erie. His skills at transporting forbidden cargo were highly desired by criminal forces still operating well into the 1930s. When John Satzer first went missing in March 1936, the Ottawa County Sheriff made public pleas for assistance in locating him. Early reports indicated that he may have been kidnapped. Setzer's relatives had witnessed three men show up at his Marine garage in Port Clinton and identify themselves as agents of the U.S. Department of Justice. They'd arrested him, stating he needed to go with them to their Fremont office to confirm identification. They whisked him away in their vehicle. The hours stretched into days, and his family had heard no word from him. Worried that he hadn't been arrested, but abducted by the mob, they turned to the sheriff for help. His first step was to contact the local U.S. Attorney's Office. He was told no agents had been sent to Zetzer's home. He was not wanted by the federal officials. He was not in their custody. What follows reads like the plot of a glorious, black-and-white Hollywood mob flick. Miraculously, nearly two weeks later, Zetzer would reappear at his own home. He'd swear in his life that he had, indeed, been taken by federal agents. He said he had been detained and questioned by them, but that he couldn't say exactly where they'd taken him. He didn't know the names of the G-men who detained him either. He refused to say anything as to what they asked him, the subject matter itself. He'd been forbidden to speak of any specifics. An investigation of monumental proportions was ongoing. Further trouble was sure to come. It would arrive in the form of a secret federal indictment come the following February. In return for his testimony against members of the infamous Carpus Gang, John Zetzer would receive a reduced sentence for his role in piloting a getaway plane for the gangster's train robbery. The Carpus Gang was one of the longest-lived crime syndicates of the Depression era. By November 1935, its leader, Alvin Carpus, was on the run. Agents had been closing in on him, compiling evidence of his mounting robberies and kidnappings. 
He'd been on the move for more than a year when the gang concocted a scheme to rob an Erie Railroad mail train in Garrettsville, Ohio. They had all the pieces in place, including the machine gun, sawed-off shotguns, and automatic pistols that would be used to hold up the train when it made its scheduled stop in the tiny town. But there was one piece of the puzzle yet to be nailed down. They needed a quick escape once the deed was done. They heard tell of a former bootlegger with a knack for flying undetected. Although he would later plead guilty to the crime, Zetzer would adamantly claim that he did not know the identities of the three well-dressed and quiet-mannered men who boarded his plane inside his garage in Port Clinton. Their only luggage was two suitcases, held firmly in their grip. Zetzer had been promised $500, $10,000 in today's money, to fly the group. He was to ask no questions and take them wherever they wanted to go. There was to be no record of the flight, no trace that it ever happened. Zetzer agreed to the job without hesitation. Zetzer was first told to land in a farmer's field near the confluence of the Ohio and Mississippi rivers. There, they would meet with gang members ready to refuel the craft. The next stop was a remote spot outside Memphis, where gang members arranged for overnight accommodations before the group headed on to Hot Springs, Arkansas. On reaching that destination, Alvin Karpus himself and one of the others deplaned. Zetzer then took the remaining gangster on to Tulsa, Oklahoma. He was then paid the promised $500 and told never to speak of the whole ordeal to anyone. Despite all the efforts at eluding authorities, the agents remained hot on the trail of the Carpus gang. They'd received tips from inside informants, and units eventually closed in on them. Most of the gang and their confederates had been arrested, interrogated, and pressured to give up what they knew. John Zetzer and his role piloting the getaway plane had become a bargaining chip as the investigation gathered steam. The gang had made off with $46,000 in cash, nearly $900,000 today. The investigation, which was highly sensitive due to its scope and wide-ranging implications, did indeed remain secret, even from the likes of local law enforcement. Federal agents knowingly denied the investigation, even when the Ottawa County Sheriff asked whether a then-missing John Zetzer had been in their custody. Although Setzer had first pled innocent to the charges, a turnabout was coming. He offered testimony to reduce a possible 10-year federal prison sentence. It would later be cut in half. He'd turned state's evidence when he testified to physical descriptions that matched Carpus and his gang members, tying them to the scene of their escape and to their eventual arrival at their known hideouts. Zetzer's testimony would lead to many arrests and plea deals from gang members. Zetzer, himself, would serve his five-year sentence at the federal prison in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. Some believe Zetzer's claims that he had no idea as to the actual identities and deeds of his passengers. The story fell apart, however, when agents secured a search warrant for his home 
and discovered an empty U.S. mail pouch that was later determined to have been stolen from the robbed train. He had been given a memento of the heist and, remarkably, hadn't thought to rid himself of the evidence. John Zutzer would remain an active member of the Port Clinton community following his release from prison. He and his brother, Joseph, would continue operating the Port Clinton Marina just down the street from where the jewel of the city sat, the Island House Hotel. This historic structure, first built in 1870 and then rebuilt after a fire in 1882, was rumored to have served many famous clientele throughout the decades including gangster royalty. Al Capone himself is said to have stayed there on multiple occasions. With the region's known reputation for bootlegging and other unsavory activities, this kind of local storytelling has taken on legendary proportions. In the course of my research, I've been so lucky to connect with a local ghost hunter and founding member of the paranormal group Haunted Delito. His name is Christopher Tillman. The group's Facebook post about John Zetzer and his mob connections is what got me to dig into the story in the first place. You can easily find Haunted Toledo on Facebook and learn how this group of enthusiasts explores the intersection of history and legend. How fortunate that Christopher had agreed to an interview on the subject. He shares not only what he knows of Port Clinton's history during Prohibition, but of the remarkable experience he had investigating the Island House Hotel one night. Our talk begins as we discuss the oft-told claim that Al Capone himself once roamed the historic hotel's hallways. Come, hear his story. There's no written proof that he ever visited. There's no written proof about anything dealing with the Island House, that particular building. But then again, mobsters don't really leave journals. So, But yeah, it's, it's very likely that because of the Zetzer brothers and what they were doing, running all that booze from Canada, it's, it's very likely that Capone did make at least a handful of visits. It's just hard, it's just hard to say. And then when, when you think about legends and stuff, you know, hotels and restaurants were a common meeting place to discuss business. And employees would say, you know, remember the mob stayed here. And they, were, they keep repeating that over and over. And finally, when somebody says mob, they think Capone. So maybe he was just people's, you know, assumption that, I mean, you never know. There's nothing written in any of the old ledgers that they could find. But I doubt, I doubt he would use his real name anyway. Well, that's one that I would guess to be one of the hard things doing research on anyone involved in illegal activities that, you know, they were keen not to leave a, a paper trail about it. Um, right. So you're left more so with like oral histories, which certainly they can be true or they can be elaborated or somewhere in between. Yeah, I wouldn't doubt Port Clinton has a huge tie to mob history. What was it about the hotel itself that first drew your interest? We were investigating the Wingate Hotel in Sylvania in 2018, and the same family that owns that hotel owns the Island House. While we were at Wingate, they had mentioned 
you know, there's possibility of something going on at, at the Island House. And we seemed interested. And it was just a matter of lining up schedules to go out and, and see the place. And one of the things I, I started doing uh, in terms of research for the building is I always look at the Google satellites. I think they get a, a feel for the neighborhood. And that satellite image really does nothing. Does, it doesn't do the building any justice. Because when we pulled up, it was just this immense, I mean, it's like a monolith on the street. It's just the, the, the center of town, basically. It, it's just, uh, you just stand in front of this building knowing the history, and it's like, and it's hard to explain. It's just it, it's just a wow feeling. It's like, I can't believe that the building's still standing and that it's still in the condition it's in. It looks like it was built maybe 20 years ago. It's just a fabulous building. It's pretty incredible given its age um, and also that uh, maybe, I guess for myself anyway, that I haven't heard of it before. And I've been to Port Clinton. <laughs> I've been on the Jet Express for that matter. Yeah, so uh, it's right there. Yeah. <laughs> it's right there. Right. Uh, what, a, what a little gem here, or a big gem, I guess, um, in seeing the kind of history um, that it has and so, so when you arrived there, you were impressed in terms of what you thought it was going to be, looking at the satellite pictures, and then what the feeling was when you're actually there in front of it. Yeah, I mean, it's totally. You know, you think in the hotel from the eighteen hundred, late eighteen hundreds, it's it's going to be small, and it's going to look its age. And we get the building is just. You know, I remember walking across the street to like this small little town square type of thing, and they got a statue of a kid, you know, going fishing. And I turned around to get a, a nice, good photo of the building. And it's like, wow, this, this building is huge, and it's beautiful. And it, I, I just, like you, you know, you pass through Port Clinton, you don't even notice it. Do you remember what were um, some of the initial things that the owners told you that was happening before you got there? The marketing director basically said, you know, there's there's some stories and some claims. Didn't really go into specifics, but they put me in touch with former employee and this was a housekeeper and she sent me a photo a couple photos actually of what she thought might be an actual ghost huh. in the hallway and it's one of those photos where you kind of got to squint to see something <laughs> you know yeah um there, there's something there but it you don't know if it's a reflection you don't know if you don't really know entirely what's going on but she seemed really convinced of her experiences and the, the feelings that she was getting inside that building, she called it like a fog. She saw this fog following down behind her in the hallway. And from there, we talked to a few more uh, former employees and some people that, that actually believe they have family members that are haunting the building, that have died in the building. And one was a, a someone's great-grandfather, that passed away in the building from a heart attack while having dinner in 1936. I believe he might still be in the building. We talked to some some form, past and present maintenance workers about the tunnels underneath the building um, and what they thought they might be apart from maintenance tunnels. Um, a lot of third shift uh, workers, housekeepers, a lot of housekeepers that claim they've seen, seen apparitions um, of female form in like the dining area. Uh, walking through the halls, it's a lot of stories, and these stories have been going on for for quite a long time. But for whatever reason, they've never really made it out to the public. 
something mm-hmm. that the employees and, and people that live right there in town have heard. Yeah, so it's more of an accepted truth maybe among their small organization, right. and it just wasn't better known. Right. Outside. What a neat thing for you to be part of the process of, you know, sharing that more widely. It was, it, it's a really, you know, when, when you're able to sit down with uh, employees and managers and, and people that work in the building and they just, they're so open and honest with, with what they're experiencing there. It's just, it's like night and day compared to like 10 years ago. when Nobody wanted to talk about this stuff. Especially there's a, a few tales inside the building where I, I, I kept asking them, are you sure you want me to talk about this? And they're like, yeah, I mean, go ahead. It, it's there. It's happened. Um, one of them was a, a woman who, who committed suicide in one of the mm. rooms. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 10 years ago, there's no business that would ever have admitted to even half this stuff because they, were, they would be afraid people would, wouldn't want to come stay there or wouldn't want to come visit the business. And oh, So much has changed, and that's what's refreshing about it, is that you can tell these stories and, and ex- explore this history people will still want to come and visit, you know. That was also one of my questions is I think sometimes these sites become sort of a ghost tourism within themselves. Um, Does that apply to this site, that that's sort of a a feature that they promote, or is it just something they're embracing as part of who they are? No, I I think they're just embracing the Uh, fact that they have these stories. They're building this part of this folklore, part of this, this history. Um, right. But they don't, they don't offer anything in terms of like a ghost hunting package or anything. Um, a couple posts I, I would mention, like, you know, if you want to go stay the night here and you want to, you want to potentially experience something weird, here are the rooms that you want to go to. So they'll accommodate people, but it's not like they're really pushing it um, right. in the marketing. Yeah. Right. That that is refreshing that they're just being open minded about it, and that um, they they welcomed you in to do the the investigation itself. What was um, that like for you? Well, usually when we get to a location, um, the some of the team members will go inside and, and introduce themselves to the staff, and I'll I'll stick around outside and start taking B roll and, and photographs while there's still some good light. So um, when I got inside, I'm just blown away by you almost look like you're walking back in time. One of the cool things about Island House is that even though it's it's modern, has all the the amenities that people expect for a hotel, they still kept that that old world style charm with the architecture and, and how the place is laid out. So it's just really neat to walk into this place and and, and to almost see, you know feel like you're actually walking into it you know back in the twenties. Really neat atmosphere. The staff is awesome. They were very open. They were very welcoming, and they couldn't wait to tell their stories. We set up, there's a, up to the right, there's like a a banquet room area that they were still in the process of doing some work in, so we set up our station in there. Um, They gave us a master key and a list of all the rooms that were unoccupied, which is pretty much the entire building. So we almost had free reign of the building and because only a handful of rooms were known to have activity we kind of focused on those rooms um 3306 would be um they call it the capone room that would be the, the third floor corner 
it's said that Capone or some mobster would come to town, that that's the room they would always want to get because when you're at that corner window, you can see the intersection and you can see out towards like the Portage River where it empties into Lake Erie. So you, you got a really good view of anybody coming and going down the road or boats coming in off the lake. So if something were, were to go down, you, you would see it coming from like a mile away. That's where the mob guys would like to stay. Uh, 3317 was the suicide room, and that's where a woman slashed her wrists in the bathroom. And one of the claims is that, uh, apart from, you know, the, the normal haunting phenomena, feeling her presence and seeing something out the corner of your eye and um, feeling like you're not fully alone in that room, is that hotel staff that once in a while would find um, razor blades just kind of like lying around. Um, they'd find what they'd clean the bathroom and they'd come back a little bit later and they'd find a razor blade on the sink counter there, or mm. they'd find one behind the TV. And it's like, they, they have no idea where these blades are coming from. They didn't give me a name because they knew I'd probably dig in to find out huh. Yeah, <laughs> more than what they wanted me to. Maybe, I don't know, but it, it seems to be a, a, a suicide within the last 20 years from the way they were talking. That room had a very weird feeling to it. Not like a bad feeling, but kind of like, yeah, you, you weren't alone inside that room. Like it just had a sad feeling to it. Okay. Um, 3306 was a weird room only because it's, a, it's like a corner room. So it's got that weird architecture to it, you know? And then there's a story of Lily. And Lily, they don't know if that's her name or not. They, that's something... The staff just kind of gave her that name on their own. But they believe that Lily is the spirit of a woman who died in the fire. Now, the building was built in 1870, I believe. Yeah. It burned down. And then a few doors down, they rebuilt the building. And they believe that Lily might have been somebody who was killed in the fire. Um, we happened to get Lily's voice on EVP in room 3306. Huh. Uh, it's a very faint EVP, but you can clearly hear a woman say, Lily. Um, there's a story of, there's a back staircase. It's like, uh, I would think it's more of like an employee staircase because it leads off the kitchen. And there's a story about a guy that fell down that stairs and died from the fall and that they believe he's haunting the building. And then on the second floor... The the sheriff, Sheriff Conrad Gernhardt, I believe is how you pronounce his name, he's the sheriff responsible for rebuilding the island house. And they believe that his spirit's on the second floor. And they say that whenever you, he, he was known to smoke grape leaf cigars and that whenever you smell that, that particular type of uh, tobacco, they believe that's him. That's a sign that he's, he's walking around the building. And there have been former maintenance men who believe that he keeps a close eye on the building and, and what's being done. And he, he's, he was a very exacting person in life, and he was very detail-oriented, and the island house is like his pride and joy. If things aren't being done just right, it's said that he'll make, he'll let you know if there's something going on that you did not like. Okay. Um, yeah, I think I read that he was one of the proprietors at one time. 
Yeah, he he started the Island House, and or he started the he eighteen eighty two it burned down, and then he raised the funds to have it rebuilt. He wanted a, he wanted the best hotel and restaurant on the lake, and he didn't put up with any shenanigans. And there's a bullet hole in the ceiling in the one of the main bar areas that they they kept. They kind of retiled the ceiling, you know, a couple decades ago, but they kept the bullet hole. And that was his way of just calming people down when things got a little bit out of hand. He just walked in and fired into the air. People knew. Time to calm down. Um, just like the Wild West there, huh? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> the bullet probably went up through the floor. Just kept, probably kept going. He didn't care. He just It was just a, a weird little time in Port Clinton, I guess. <laughs> Um, so it sounds like it's a kind of a culmination of a number of different uh, odd experiences that they attribute to maybe a couple different ghosts. Is right. that how you you gathered it too? Right, because I, you know, a lot of these ghost stories, especially when they're in a building as big as this and they're experienced by a number of different people. I mean, something happens, something weird happens, right? And I could perceive it as being playful, and you could perceive it as being a little bit intimidating. Yeah. Um, so two people, they create these two different personalities based on one little event. And I think that's how a lot of these ghost stories get started is I think some of these places are only maybe being haunted by one or two entities and they've grown into dozens because people are attributing a, a different personality for each individual event. Yeah. According to the own, their own lens of how they're interpreting what happened and, um, that that would make sense, which kind of diffuses the stories and you get a whole bunch of different ideas of who this could be or what it could be. But when you total the sum of it, you know, when you have so many people reporting these things, that does add some credence, I think, to the idea that there's something unusual. Oh, yeah. You know, going on. Yeah. Yeah. For us, it was kind of quiet. And we went, you know, there's definite feelings of, you know, if, when you're looking for this stuff, sometimes your mind will play tricks on you and you'll you'll misinterpret some things. But there was some definite feelings that we were being watched or we were, like something was curious. Hmm. Definite feeling of, of curiosity as we were walking through the halls and going from room to room. But that's not really evidence. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until we caught the EVP in, in 3306 that tells me, now, there's definitely something going on. You know, I, I can't remember the exact question. I was, you know, like, you know, can you tell us your name? Something along that lines. And, you know, everybody was quiet. Then I went to the next question. And when you played it back, you, you heard a woman say, Lily. That's the name that, that we've been told. You know, that's the name that she was given. So maybe somebody heard that name being spoken aloud or something. I don't, I don't know, but, or maybe she's using that name because she knows that's how she's being identified as. It tells me something's going on there. That's a name, Lily, that the, uh, the staff there had already been familiar with. Yeah. Hmm. They attribute Lily as to being the, the fire victim. Okay. Did they say someone, someone of them heard the name or did they say how, the name got associated? No. no, the people that were there, um, this is something they've heard passed down from other employees. Oh. Hmm. And it's, it's just, uh, even the fire victim story, 
know, that's just what they've heard. And a lot of people have, they've seen something that they attribute to being some kind of apparition. Um, they've heard voices. They've had, there's a, a ton of accounts of um, electrical equipment turning on and off by itself, like televisions and radios. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a, um, a feeling of being watched and like the, there's a small, like a breakfast dining area off the lobby. And there's, there's a feeling of, of something back there that will watch and make sure things are being, they get the feeling that it's like a manager watching to make sure they're doing things right. And they mm. attribute that to the, the sheriff. Yeah. The maintenance guys especially claim that, you know, Sheriff Conrad is really keeping a close eye on what they're doing. If there's like repainting or any type of small remodel work, they claim there's always a feeling that something doesn't like what they're doing. Hmm. Uh, anytime there's a change made. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's got, it's, it's all general, you know, the general haunting type phenomena. Yeah. Nothing really outrageous. There's like nothing's flying around the room or anything like that. And, um, but they attribute it to Sheriff Conrad. And we we did smell cigar smoke outside the room that he was known to stay in. So we, we smelled something. But, but then, you know, with plaster and carpet and wood, those tend to hold smells. And under the right conditions, you, you can still smell. It's kind of like cigarette smoke. You walk into a smoker's house. Mm-hmm. Maybe they haven't smoked in 10 years. But in the right conditions, you can kind of get a whiff of that stale tobacco smell. Right. So we're kind of thinking, well, maybe that's what it is. You know, maybe it's just back going back to when they still allowed smoking indoors. Maybe it's just that's what we're smelling. But it had that grape, had that grape leaf tobacco type of smell to it. Right. So specific. Of course, it would make you wonder, you know, yeah. maybe there is something to this story. Mm-hmm. Of all the places we've been, only a handful have had just employees lining up to tell their story. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of times we have to go out and find former employees or, or former patrons that are willing to talk. Um, yeah, this was right. really neat. They, I want to say that like none of the stuff that they're experiencing is like scary or um, so unnerving that they have to leave the building. This is right. just just those odd things that's like, I would imagine a lot of it could be misrepresented and they attribute it to a a spirit or something or a haunting. But a lot of the stuff they explain too is just like, you know, how could it be anything other? The endless claims of paranormal activity at the Island House Hotel suggest that it is perhaps a holding place for lost souls. As Christopher noted, Sheriff Conrad Gernhardt, former proprietor and chief law enforcement officer for Ottawa County, is believed to be one of many resident ghosts at this storied hotel. Just a little digging into the historical record reveals his unique story, shedding even more light on what makes this location so fabled. Born in Germany on November 16, 1851, Conrad Gernhard and his family would immigrate to the U.S. when he was only five years old. His mother had given birth to Conrad's newest brother on the voyage over. On their arrival at Staten Island, their vessel was quarantined in New York Harbor 
yellow fever had spread wide amongst the passengers. His mother, newborn brother, and Conrad's older half-sister would all perish from the disease before stepping foot on U.S. soil. Conrad and his surviving brother, George, would later be placed in a New York hospital. Conrad would ultimately recover, but his brother would die of apparent neglect, as hospital staff were stretched too thin to meet all the sickened immigrants' needs. Once his father finally secured employment in New Jersey, and later in the tiny town of Birmingham, Ohio, he was able to send for Conrad, his only surviving son. That's how Conrad would come to live near Lake Erie's southern shore. Yet, for reasons unknown, at the age of nine in 1860, his father relinquished parental rights, allowing for Conrad to be adopted by a Mr. Matthias Gernhard, a farmer owning land in Elliston in Ottawa County. Come two years later, in 1862, Conrad's new adoptive father would enlist in the Ohio Volunteer Infantry, Company E, 72nd Regiment. At the tender age of only 11 years, Conrad was once again abandoned and left largely to his own devices. Instead of turning to a life of delinquency or poverty, Conrad would stay at his adoptive father's farm. He'd learn to fell trees on the property and then split them into lumber suitable for railroad ties, a business in great demand at that time. The work was long and hard, allowing for school attendance only a few weeks during the winter season. At the age of 18, this self-made, enterprising immigrant had saved enough cash to buy a saloon in Elliston in 1882. Such a step at this young age propelled him into the public eye and provided a platform for his run for sheriff of Ottawa County. He would hold the office for four years, the last six months of which would be spent rebuilding the Island House Hotel, his next business venture. The original structure had been damaged in a fire the same year he'd bought the saloon. Conrad saw promise in the hotel's location near the lake and Portage River. He knew it would become a sought-after spot by celebrities and ordinary citizens alike. And did it ever. The Island House Hotel opened under his ownership in 1886. Its legendary role in Port Clinton's history remains yet today. Most of it is thanks to the enduring legacy of this resourceful and self-made immigrant. Gernhard built the hotel into luxury accommodations suited for A-list celebrities, like Presidents Hayes, Garfield and Taft, General Douglas MacArthur, the Ringling Brothers, Joe DiMaggio, Marilyn Monroe, Lauren Bacall, Humphrey Bogart, and Babe Ruth, just to name a few. He also was central to developing Port Clinton's reputation as a tourist destination, a claim it still holds today. In 1895, he and a handful of other community leaders began the Port Clinton Steamboat Company, ferrying passengers to and from the Lake Erie Islands. It's a ritual most of us have repeated when we step aboard the Jet Express on our next voyage to Putin Bay or Kelly's Island.
Conrad Gernhard would die of natural causes in 1909 at the age of 57. You can find his family's plot in Lakeview Cemetery in Port Clinton. He and his German-born wife, Augusta, raised five children. For a time, his son, Frank Gernhard, would run the hotel. One interesting story that comes out of his management style reveals the flair he had for marketing ploys. On a snowy January 15, 1912, he and two other men were the first ever to drive an automobile across Erie's frozen surface, all the way to Putten Bay. The three had left at 2.45 p.m. in a runabout, which is an open-air vehicle known for its lightweight, basic style with no windshield, top, or doors, and a single row of seats. At multiple spots along the way, where the ice was cracked, they had to lay down planks they brought with them just for that purpose. The boards would distribute the vehicle's weight across to more sturdy ice. More than a few times, they had to plow through snowbanks that piled more than three feet high. Once they'd only had two more miles to reach Middle Bass Island's eastern shore, they'd almost lost the car for good in a snowbank. They had to work hard to free the vehicle, and the delay in time was considerable. Those on the shore, who were awaiting their arrival, contacted the local fire brigade. It had begun snowing, and the clouds looked like a storm was forming over the lake. Just as a search party was about to make a harrowing and dangerous rescue attempt, the little car was spotted headed toward the shore. They could have lost their lives, and the lives of their rescuers, but instead, they received publicity for the stunt in newspapers around the country. So what do you think? Was there delay due to getting stuck in a snowbank? Perhaps there's something to be said about waiting it out, drawing out the tension, and riding to your destination in the glory of applause of relieved onlookers. Not only that, but it reads as a better story, right? Newspaper readers around the country undoubtedly agreed. It's said that you can still find Frank Gernhard's signature etched into the glass window that now sits between the hotel's bar and dining room. He used a diamond ring to scratch his name, so that we can all remember him and his connection to this storied location. Frank Gernhard would walk away from managing the Island House Hotel in 1916 and then later sell it in 1922. It would pass ownership several times, of course, in the more than 100 years that have passed since. As mentioned earlier, it's believed to have played a role in the town's bootlegging history, the rumor that's most often told, however, is the claim that Al Capone liked to stay in room 3306. Its unique corner window offered unobstructed views of the lake, the mouth of the Portage River, and the intersection of Madison and Perry Streets. All comings and goings of the rum-running operations were plainly visible. Today, many people who frequent Port Clinton are looking for a holiday, a break from the doldrums of routine life. And it's fair to say that a majority of adults planning to embark on the Jet Express toward Putten Bay have plans for a bender. The area's reputation for revelry and drunken debauchery remains intact. 
Few tourists have any clue as to the deep historical roots that reflect these habits. Fewer still are aware of the taxing efforts and determination of one orphaned immigrant young man who was determined to create a tourist destination fit for presidents and movie stars. His influence remains in the fine 19th century woodwork that runs inside the Island House Hotel's walls. It remains in the elegance of its white-trimmed brick facade. Yet, most importantly, his influence remains there at the hotel, perhaps because he remains there. If we are to believe the numerous sightings attributed to his exacting spirit, then Conrad Gernhard is drawing guests to this hotel yet today. If you'd like to find out for yourself whether he's still there, you can. The hotel is ready to welcome you if you have a credit card in hand. Stay for the night, or two, or more. Keep a keen ear during your stay, and a sharp eye. Who knows, you might just spot the misty shape of a man in a fedora as he floats out of room 3306. Be sure to make your way at some point down to the hotel bar. Order their best Prohibition-era cocktail and raise a glass to the Ohioans who've gone before us those who've left their mark on this corner of the state, a mark that reminds us of the importance of self-reliance, a daring nature, and the joy of taking in life's simplest pleasures. Cheers, everyone. This concludes today's episode on Port Clinton, Prohibition, and the Island House Hotel. I hope you liked it. Don't forget to write a review on Apple Podcasts and email me a screenshot of the review at melissa at ohiofolklore.com. Maybe you'll be the Ohio Folklore listener who gets to pick a topic of a future episode. You can find Ohio Folklore at ohiofolklore.com and on Facebook. Thanks for listening, and as always, keep wondering. <laughs>